Well, good morning, church family. And uh, if this is your first time here at Windsor Road, surely you can understand why uh, our vision as a church is to passionately pursue Christ. He's first, he's most important, and we are here because of him, because of what he's done and what he is doing to unite us here as a church family. And um, our message today is really about finding joy in Christ and Christ alone and not in anyone and anything else. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. You'll find that on page 981 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to uh, take the black copy of uh, the Scriptures and put your name in it and take it home as a gift from this church. We're glad that you're here today and we want to share God's Word with you. You're going to see as we look through these verses, how the Apostle Paul finds his joy in Jesus and Jesus alone. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. In 1942, C.S. Lewis, who gave us the Chronicles of Narnia, in 1942, C.S. Lewis wrote a novel, uh, a, a satire, a satirical novel called The Screwtape Letters. And the Screwtape Letters is a series of letters written by a senior demon named Screwtape who is mentoring a junior demon named Wormwood. And Screwtape is giving advice to Wormwood 
And Wormwood's mission is to destroy the faith of a certain Christian uh, whom the novel simply calls the patient. And in one of those letters, Screwtape tells Wormwood that if he wants to distract the patient, if he wants to debilitate him, if he wants to keep Christians powerless and ineffective, just make sure that those Christians never come to a place of believing that Christ alone is enough. Here's what the letter reads. What we want if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Keep in mind, this is 1942. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychical research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. I mean, if they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. Well, today we're going to look at the dangerous doctrine of Christianity and. Paul warns against it in Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Could you sense it there? Christianity and. It's, it's a false teaching that looks so innocent and harmless, even commendable, because, you know, we're kind of helping Jesus out. But in the end of the day, Christianity and guts the gospel, all right? So our big idea today, what we see as we look through these verses, is just simply this. Anything we try, anything we try to add to Christ ultimately results in a Christless Christianity. Christ always gets subtracted from Christianity when we try to add to Christianity, And that's all over these verses. And and fewer things put the Apostle Paul on tilt than the dangerous doctrine of Christianity and. And that's why his tone is so harsh in in verse 2. I mean, this is the Apostle who said that, you know, he held the Philippians in their heart, chapter 1. He said, "Oh, oh, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, the same Apostle here in uh, chapter 3, verse 2 says, look out for the dogs. And he uses repetition here for emphasis. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators. You know, danger will Robbins, danger, danger. I mean, where did where did that come from? Well, there's a story here, and we need to hear that story so we can understand Paul's passion. We need to consider how the dangerous doctrine of Christianity affected Paul's world, so that we can understand how it affects our world if we buy into it. So, so you know, the story is about the Apostle Paul, who is in. Rome. Recall that Paul, this Roman citizen, is under house arrest in Rome, and Acts 28 tells us about that experience. Paul is in a rented 
place. He is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. He's on trial uh, for his life. He's awaiting the verdict of his trial. And uh, the shift of these Roman guards changes every six hours. So every six hours, the Apostle Paul has a new Roman guard to preach to. And that Roman guard then goes back to the Praetorian and talks about this crazy rabbi who is crazy about this Jesus who is risen from the dead. And, and yet he's so sincere, and yet it's incredible. And so Paul is just having to pay for his own expenses since the state won't. They didn't do that back then. So when the church at Philippi a church that he established about 10 years prior, when they found out that their beloved Paul was under house arrest in Rome, they heard about his situation and they sent a generous love offering by way of one of their leaders, a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. And so Epaphroditus gets there and gives Paul an update about the church. And sure enough, part of that update, part of that report, deals with these false teachers who believe that faith in Jesus is not enough for heaven. The dangerous doctrine of Christianity and. These false teachers taught that to belong to the people of God required more than simply Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. To be a Christian, you must first convert to Judaism and In order to convert to Judaism, those of you, Greek men, must undergo the rite of circumcision. And then, of course, after that, there are some dietary regulations and holidays to observe, and then you'll learn about that a little bit later. But that's basically it. Christianity and Jesus plus the Hebrew rites of the Old Covenant equals a relationship with God. That was, that was the essence of the false teachers. These false teachers, by the way, uh, were called Judaizers. Judaizers. And a Judaizer was someone, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, succinctly defines what a Judaizer taught and believed. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what the Judaizer believed in a sentence. And, and these Judaizers seemed to shadow Paul in his ministry all across the Roman Empire. Paul would go to a city. He would argue that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then people of all races would respond. Uh, the people of God, the new Israel, this multinational, multi-ethnic community of Christ-centered followers. That happened in Philippi, Lydia was the charter member of the church at Philippi. And actually, that probably wasn't her formal name because she was, you know, she was, she was from Lydia. She was known as the Lydia Lady. But she was this uh, uh, phenomenal executive who uh, sold high-end purple cloth. And, and the church began to meet in her house. And, and so she was there. And then this, 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 this crusty jailer from Philippi who had imprisoned Paul before uh, his life got rocked by the gospel. And then there was this formerly demon-possessed girl. And then there was Epaphroditus. And then there was Euodia and Syntyche. And so this church had gathered. And, and well, then these Judaizers showed up after Paul left. And they tried to undo all of Paul's work by this dangerous doctrine of Christianity and. And this kind of thing had been going on for years. Years. And I I cannot imagine 
what that would be like if I, you know, were to stand up here and give you the gospel, give you Jesus, and then, you know, afterwards in that room over there on the other side of that door, a small cluster would meet and say, well, you know, Pastor Randy talked about this Jesus, but he didn't finish the story. It's Jesus and, see, can you imagine that group? Over there, on the other side of that door, trying to undo all that we're doing here. What, what is going on on the other side of that door, by the way? I'm just curious. And we'll be okay. Or maybe in a home group. I mean, I, I just can't fathom that. Christianity and. One can only guess what screw tape would write today. Christianity and self-affirmation? Christianity and self-improvement? Christianity and personal progress? Maybe there would be a host of causes that might crop up, right? Christianity and environmentalism? Christianity and public, private, and or homeschooling? Christianity and social justice? Christianity and diversity and tolerance. Have I offended everybody yet? Huh? Oh, I'm not done. <laughs> what about Christianity and political action, right? Uh, of any variation, liberal, conservative, libertarian, hope and change, take back America, whatever, you know? Oh, if I haven't offended everybody, let me just say this. Christianity and the St. Louis Cardinals. I mean, just anything. <laughs> Who knows, you know? I mean, all these things are just sweet in and of themselves, but they make a lousy foundation for my standing before the presence of a holy God. And yet this sort of thing was going on in the first century. These Judaizers tracked Paul throughout of his, his ministry. You can read about it in the book of Acts and it crops up in the letter to the Colossians, and it's, it's, I mean, it's in bold print all over the, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so, so when Paul finds out from Epaphroditus what's lurking in Philippi, he goes ballistic. He calls these Judaizers by three different names, dogs, evildoers, mutilators, and, and, you know, we're getting this in, a, in American English, and, and the New Testament came to us by way of the Greek, and so, you know, in a rhetorical uh, uh, surge, all those three names, dogs, evildoers, and mutilators, they all start with the same Greek letter, kappa, so there's a, you know, there's alliteration going on, as only preachers like to do. Dogs, dogs, what is Paul a he doesn't like pets or what? Well, understand, hold on now. Um, no, he didn't. <laughs> but, I mean, no, nobody else did in the first century either. They, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't have the kind of affinity. It just, it, it's true. People didn't have in the first century the kind of affinity for dogs like you and I do because they weren't bred as pets. They weren't. The dogs that Paul's talking about, they were scavengers, they roamed in nomads and packs.
rocks and they would attack the weak. They would be known to attack children. They were wild. They, they, they fed on garbage and refuse. And, and so from a Jewish point of view, to call someone a dog, that was a term of ridicule. It was a term of derision. And so Jews called non-Jews dogs. Jesus did in Mark chapter 7, the Syrophoenician woman. But here in bitter irony, Paul reverses the term. Paul says that these Hebrew Judaizers, they're the ones who are dogs. You see, Look out for them. And then he says, look out for those evildoers. Now, the Judaizers weren't bank robbers or terrorists or they weren't addicted to porn, but their insistence on doing religious works as a condition for heaven, their morality as good as it was, made them out to be evildoers. You see, Paul flips terms here. And then he uses very strong language when he says, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Well, these, you know, Paul is saying, these guys are grisly flesh cutters. They sound spiritual and holy, but they're nothing more than butchers with rusty blades. Clearly, Paul is not happy with them. But here's the thing. For Paul to write with such passion implies that these Judaizers are making progress. They're persuasive. They're convincing. What they're saying is working. But why? I mean, think about it. What would possibly convince an uncircumcised, non-Jewish, adult male to succumb to circumcision? Here's why. Two reasons. First, a religious reason. These Judaizers would infiltrate this church community and say, you know, you've been a Christian for a while. Church is 10 years old. Now it's time to take the next step, spiritually. Now it's time to mature. And here is an identity marker for the mature, for the arrived. An identity marker as the people of God in a crooked and depraved generation. And oh, if you will but come under the umbrella of Judaism, then you will be safe from persecution in the Roman Empire because Judaism was a permitted religion, you see. A religious reason. And that just kind of flows into a social reason. A social reason. Listen, we read these verses as 21st century Americans bathed in the Bill of Rights. We've got freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion. If I, if I want to bow down and worship this pulpit, there's nothing Washington can do about it. That's my right. But that didn't exist back then. The Romans worshiped the emperor. Roman citizens would go to the, the temple in honor of that emperor. Even if they thought he was a fruitcake, they would go because that's what good Romans did. And they were in Philippi, this Roman colony, this, this piece of Rome, this miniature Rome throughout the empire. And if you weren't worshiping the emperor, it had better be because you were worshiping another permitted religion. And Judaism was that permitted religion. And Christianity was not. And... and 
you know, these Christians in Philippi, they were like religious misfits. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have any Roman religious practices or Roman feasts. And they, they didn't show their loyalty to Caesar. And they, they, they were no longer participating in the civic functions as good Romans would. They proclaimed Jesus as their Lord, not Caesar. And when they gathered, you know, where did they go? People would say, well, you're, you're a Christian. Where's your temple? They would say, well, we... We, we are the temple. And people would look at them like, what? You know? And they gathered. They had house church. That's where they gathered. And they, they held that Jesus, the Son of God, was their God. And the Romans said, well, wasn't he the guy who suffered an ignominious death on a Roman cross? You worship a God who was crucified? What? Christianity symbol. Is not a lazy boy recliner or a paid-up pension plan. It's an instrument of torture. And, and keep in mind, the Philippian church started in unrest with the Roman culture at Philippi. And so, so you see these religious reasons and these social reasons, they were powerful enough to tempt more than a few to compromise the faith in order to fit in. And we like to say, no, I'm going to stand against the crowd. But often in the current of peer pressure, many cave. Well, Paul didn't, and he pushes back. He says, look, if you want to play the Christianity and game, I've been there. I've been there. I've done that. I played the game. In fact, I was the best at the game. And that's what's behind verse 4, where Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then in verses 5 and 6, Paul gives his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day, didn't wait till he was an adult. Literally, Paul says, I was an eighth dayer. And he says, I'm, I was of the people of Israel, meaning Paul was purebred Hebrew, both of his parents, 100% Hebrew. And then he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? It meant that while many Jews were born outside of Israel, as was Paul, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Many Jews were born outside of Israel, and they just simply assimilated into the greater Greek and Roman culture. In fact, some of those Jews couldn't even speak Hebrew. Paul says, I could, and I maintained my cultural purity, and I could speak the language of my ancestors. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the two tribes that uh, remained loyal to the house of David and the worship of Yahweh. And then, and you know, Benjamin was that tribe from which Israel's first king came, King Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And then Paul says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, meaning, well, a Pharisee means a separate one. Strict observance, the study of the law. Though Paul was born in Tarsus, he was educated in Jerusalem under the great Gamaliel. And then he wasn't just a passive scholar. He was an activist as to his zeal. What does it say? Persecuting the church. Later on, in his correspondence to Timothy, Paul would say, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And then, regarding 
His righteousness of the law, Paul says, without blame. That's his resume right there, verses five and six. Now, what's the point of a resume? What's the point of a resume? It's to get you in, right? You're gonna get in. You're gonna get into a university. You're gonna get into a job. You're gonna get into a grant. Get into a club. And Paul says, none of you Judaizers could even touch where I've been. I'm a... I was racially pure, academically pure, culturally pure, religiously pure. I had the right life and the right reputation and the right history and the right pedigree and the right lineage. And then something happened that changed my life. Jesus. Paul met Christ on his way to persecute Christians in the city of Damascus. Christ himself appeared to Paul, and he wrecked his life and then gave him a new one. And Paul's whole life now revolves around Jesus. Paul orbits Jesus, as verses 7 through 11 tell us. Nine times, by name or by pronoun, Christ fills all of Paul's vision. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. And what you need to understand is that what changed Paul wasn't that he played the game and failed. That wasn't it. It's that he played the game and succeeded. Paul didn't become a Christian out of guilt and angst for the poor, rotten decisions he'd made in life. Paul was rather satisfied with his life. He was happy with his life. But then he found out that the life he was living wasn't based in reality. Jesus was his reality. The very one he was persecuting was the high king of heaven. And once Paul saw who Christ was, once Paul saw his power and splendor and beauty and glory, it was a whole new day. Listen, when the sun rises, its splendor and light outshine all of the stars. And just as you can't see the stars because of the sun's brilliance, Jesus' beauty and brilliance surpassed all. And once Paul saw Christ, nothing else mattered in his life. Because compared to Christ, compared to the brilliance and beauty and splendor and perfection and holiness of Christ, Paul's resume, his life, his achievements were loss, loss. And Paul even puts it more strongly than that. Compared to the brilliance of Christ, my resume is just manure. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, excrement, manure, in order that I may gain Christ. You understand? Paul, Paul not only had to repent of his unrighteousness, but Paul had to repent of his righteousness before this holy Christ. And, and, and in verses 9 through 11, Paul asserts that the only thing he wants is to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want his righteousness. 
a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith and leans on faith. And Paul says that just as Christ suffered, I'm willing to suffer so that I might know him more and more and more. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, I'm totally trusting him to do the same for me based on his righteousness. You see, your righteousness, your righteousness is what allows you to stand before a holy God. And Paul says, my morality is not going to be the basis of my righteousness. My immorality certainly won't. My law-keeping won't be the basis of my righteousness. Jesus. Jesus is now the basis of my righteousness. And in fact, Paul's life, Paul's life in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, resembles Jesus' life in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You see, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, just as Jesus did not exploit the privileges of being God's son, but rather emptied himself into becoming a slave unto the point of death on a cross... Paul will not exploit his privileged status as a purebred Hebrew Pharisee, but rather he divested himself in order to serve his risen king, totally trusting that that risen king will, in Philippians 3.21, transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you see why Paul finds his joy in Christ alone? You see why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. It's a verse that does not so much prescribe a feeling God wants us to feel as much as it prescribes an activity that God wants us to do as a community. Do something joyful. And why? Because, verse 3, we are the circumcision. Yes, there's been a cutting. There's been a cutting of the Son of God on that cross. And that truth, that truth has cut the calluses and scabs from our hearts so that we can hear the truth, which is this. God's love is not for sale. There's nothing you can do to earn his love. It's a gift that you receive by grace through faith in Christ alone. We, Paul says, and he's saying this to to, to Hebrews and Gentiles, people from all races, we are the circumcision. And we who worship by the Spirit of God. So we don't need the temples and the rites. They're unnecessary. And we who glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who unites us. He's the one who brings us together. He is our success. Paul is no longer interested in the progress he feels he's making in terms of attaining the perfection that comes by law-keeping. He's not interested in that. He's interested in this. I want to gain Christ, know Christ, and be found in Christ. That's what I want. And you know what that means? That means that now you can spend your life giving up your place for others instead of guarding it from others because your identity is in Christ and not your position. Now you can spend your energy going to the back instead of trying to get to the front 
because your identity is in Christ, not your place. And now you can spend your life giving, not taking, because your identity is in Christ, not your possessions. And all of this is our new identity, gaining Christ, knowing Christ, and being found in Christ, all because of Christ's finished work for you and me. That's grace. Church family, the gospel is not God's way of giving us an even better self-improvement goal. It's not. The, the gospel is God's judgment on our better selves and his replacement of it all with Jesus. Everybody, we live in a world that says, you know, if I can only do X or if I can only be Y, then I would arrive. What's arrival to you? What, what is it to you? What does it look like? If it isn't Jesus, if it isn't the risen Lord himself, every arrival you achieve is really just a setback. And so if you make financial security your arrival, you're already trapped in anxiety. If you make a thin body your identity, then you're going to hate yourself more and more. If you make a porn-free life your okayness, you're doomed to compulsion. Because God's remedy to you is not more money or better looks or perfect control. It's not. God's gift to you is Jesus. That's all you need. With Jesus, we're saved. Everything will be all right. Without Jesus, we're damned. Nothing will go right. What Paul's telling us here is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that's good news, isn't it? What I'm here to tell you is that Christianity is not a religion. It's not. Christianity is the announcement of the end of religion. Religion is about all those things the human race has ever thought it had to do in order to get right with God. But here's the deal. None of those things ever had the least chance of doing the job. I mean, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats will never take away sins. And, 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 and Paul's letter to the Romans tells us that no effort of ours to keep the law of God could ever succeed, really. Oh, and everything that religion tried and failed to do has been perfectly done once and for all by Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so for Christians, I mean, the entire religion shop has been closed and boarded up and forgotten. We're not in the religion business. Never have been. Never will be. The church, instead, we're in the gospel-proclaiming business. That's our business. Our business is not to bring the world the bad news that God will think kindly about us only after we have gone through certain creedal, liturgical, and ethical wickets. We're here to bring the world the good news that, verse 9, there's a righteousness that comes from God by grace through faith in Jesus. That's why we passionately pursue him. The word of the day is not Jesus and, but Jesus alone. Amen.